Hello, welcome back to another episode of Zenith Podcast. I'm your host, Cesar Davila. This is where we explore culture, relationships, nature, art, consciousness, and the appreciation of life. I'm here again with Marissa Rojo. She's a doctor in occupational therapy and a high school alumni friend. Welcome back. Hi, Caesar. Thanks for having me. Of course. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, definitely go back to listen because we get to we get we go really in depth with who she is, what she does, why she does it. And what is it that you do? So I'm an occupational therapist at Kedron Health, which is a psychiatric hospital in South LA. South LA. And you've been doing this at the moment full time for six months, but you also had some prior experience doing the internship, doing your master's program, right? Right. So when I was a student, I was working here for free, right? Unpaid as a student for 12 weeks. And then... um I had to pass my boards and everything. And for my residency, for my doctorate, that's when I reached out to my boss again, since we already had that relationship. And I asked him, you know, can I do my residency here? And I got hired and I did my residency and I'm a full-time employee. So when you did the internship there, was there like, how did you like, I'm sure the internship led, led some influence to have you want to work there. Yes. Like what what happened? <laughs> yes. So I loved it. When I believe it or not, I loved working at a psychiatric hospital. Um I remember my first few days was very scary being a student because I remember right when I started I had a patient very fixated on me. You know, he would when I would go upstairs to the unit, he would look me up and down. He would get very close to me. I remember I felt my heart pounding because it was scary as a student and I even had the security and like the other OTs how to kind of like guard me in a sense because he was so fixated on me so as a student it was very scary however working there for 12 weeks I realized how fun it was plus my boss and my coworkers were absolutely amazing and so supportive as a student and that's the biggest reason why I came back as an employee because of the staff support and because of like the relationship we had, it was, it was, it's not like a normal work environment. There's no drama. We're all friends. Um, it's just, we're so supportive. And the big reason is because the place that we work, we have to work together all the time. We work as a team because the people that we work with are so acute that we have to report, you know, certain behaviors or or certain things that we saw, stuff like that. We're always communicating with each other, which is why we have such a such good relationship because that's going to help us, you know, overall in our job. Yeah. Okay. So something I noticed you've said here and you've said multiple times our last episode is that these particular people are acute. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate? What does that mean? Yes. So acute meaning very, very, very ill, basically. So we get patients who are mentally ill. It could be from depression, anxiety, mood disorders, personality disorders. Um, so just a wide range of mental illnesses. 
However, in order for them to actually get admitted into a psych hospital, it's because they have to be a danger to self, so a danger to hurting themselves, so they could be like suicidal, a danger to others, so a danger into hurting other people. So they might, you know, be hearing voices that tells them to, you know, kill their family or something like that, or gravely disabled, which means they're so ill that they can't provide food for themselves or shelter because they're so mentally ill. That is intense. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot more sense now why it's particularly categorized as acute. So with your line of work as an occupational therapist, is there like a more common type of client or like a, not client, but like, is there more like person that you treat with? No. So we work with everyone. So roll the dice every day? Every day. We work with every single person that gets admitted into the hospital. However, I do have to say that if a patient is too psychotic, which means they are too aggressive or they are too, let's say, they hear so many voices, they can't sit still or engage in our group, then we might have to have, you know, security get them out of our group. Because our purpose, our role of OTs is to keep the group process together at all times so that's what we do as occupational therapy and occupational therapists in a psychiatric hospital is we run groups so we run group therapy that includes social skills leisure sensory skills coping skills um adls and self-care skills and life skills so basically we're teaching all of these patients important skills for them to carry and to cope while they're in the hospital but also to cope and manage their mental illness when they leave the hospital. Yeah, that's that's actually very interesting. That seems like some like what you're saying, you know, what you're teaching these people seems like this knowledge might not just benefit these acute people, but it benefit society in general. Yeah. Because we all cope with something one way or another. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be mentally ill to have coping strategies or have relationships with other people to help your mental health, you know? For example, like um, every day when I see patients, when we interview them, we ask them, who's your support system? Because that's one way to cope, right? Having people to talk to. Or we ask them, what are some things you like to do for fun? Because if someone says nothing, well, then you know something's, something's wrong. Everyone has something that they like to do for fun. If you say, what are some coping strategies that you do to navigate, you know, depression, anxiety, whatever it is that they're thinking. And if they say, I don't know, or sleep, it's like, okay, well, we're going to help you identify coping strategies, healthy coping strategies, because a lot of them, they'll be like, oh, you know, I smoke, I smoke every day, or I, you know, sit down and watch TV for 12 hours a day. So we try to find place to, to, find strategies to replace those negative coping strategies and how do you do that by teaching them in our groups like how we could do it so like for example we could be as creative as we want so like coping strategies we could cope through painting through reading through storytelling through creative arts so many ways to cope and this is how we teach them examples so we teach them everyday different examples of ways to cope we teach them sensory strategies. How can we te- how can we use our senses to cope? So, for example, we could use wow. deep breathing. 
deep breathing could be a coping mechanism, aromatherapy. For example, when I get my migraines, I use um, essential oils and I rub them on my temples to help with my migraines. That's something that is beneficial for me to cope with my migraines. And that's a sensory strategy. So so yeah, that's those are the groups that we run. We could be as creative and as broad as we can be in our groups. Wow, that is wow, I that is really mind blowing. That makes a lot of sense though, you know, because you're you're essentially a, a resource to help them hone in like these skills that would give them like like the ability to be stable, you yeah. know, in in life. And it's literally as simple as so we have a group where it's called self-care. And it's literally as simple as them brushing their hair, getting dressed every day. That's how you improve your mood and your self-esteem every day. Because if you just lay in bed, you don't brush your teeth, you don't eat, you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to feel well. And so that's why we really instilled these, the importance of that, of taking care of yourself in our groups. Because, for example, let's say someone who is suicidal they don't have really good self-esteem. So we teach them the importance of of improving your self-esteem, of positive self-talk, of even a simple smile is a big thing to someone who's suicidal. So all of that plays a part of our role in the hospital and our role to, to help benefit the patients. Okay. And is there any particular strategy that you've seen like is there any like is there any strategy like you see yourself kind of lean towards like oh like i feel like this is probably my favorite way that could get people to understand like how to, how to figure themselves out i'm not sure if that makes any sense yeah um it's so it's so broad that it's hard to hone into like certain areas so because... you're literally adapting to every single person like depending on depending on what's going on? It's more so them adapting to our groups because all of our groups are the same. Well, they're different every day, but if we have one group, it's the same for every single patient. We don't adapt to each patient because there's too many patients to work with. That's why we do group therapy. But something that I've seen work a lot is journaling. Like that's one thing that I see a lot of patients request. They'll be like, because we, we offer them supplies as well. So we could give them journals. So we offer journals and they write down their thoughts. They write music, stuff like that. Um, reading, reading books. I see a lot of patients reading books to help their mental health. Oh, what else? I don't know if I, don't know if I could think of like any specific things, but there's just. But it, I feel like I feel like what you, I feel like a big theme of what you're of what you're saying right now though is kind of like creativity. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Cause, yeah. Because think about how you cope. Like what's like for example, you you mentioned that you have lupus. How are you coping with that? I cope with lupus mainly by talking about it. You know, like in reality, like this podcast has become a your coping forward. mechanism. Yeah, literally. exactly, exactly. And so that's that's people who are mentally ill. They struggle finding that. They won't know how to cope. I feel like a lot of people like even. Like, even normal people struggle finding that. Right, right. And so that's why we provide them with so many different activities because there's going to be one activity that they're going to connect with. You know, they'll be like, wow, I never knew that I enjoy painting so much, you know, or 
I never knew that if I got dressed every single day in the morning and said a positive affirmation, I will feel so much better about myself, you know? Yeah. Also, I think the hard part as well is, is um, doing the work to see the results. Sometimes it's a process, you know, it takes a while. Sometimes it doesn't. It depends on, you know, how, how fortunate you are to find what works for you, you know, but it's, I think that's really difficult. And, and that's probably like something that you work with a lot too, is just being able to be patient. Oh yes. We have to have so much patience, so much patience at our job. Um, I also get a lot of patients who ask me, they say, how do you manage your struggles? You know? And one thing that I always tell them is I actually love taking a, a break outside and like going out for a walk with my dog. Um, I was like, if you ever feel like you need a, a support animal or something, like I totally encourage it because that animal will make you get out of bed, will make you feed that animal, will make you step outside in nature, will have someone to talk to, you know? So I always recommend this to my patients too. Um, and a lot of the times they realize like, oh yeah, like I could do that or I do have a dog, and but they just don't even realize how that could improve their mental health, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you know. I spent like when you talked about that, it kind of brought me back to we both went through this, you know, like you know, losing a companion, mm -hmm. and I didn't realize it until recently. But my sister's dog, I've been using her as a as like a coping mechanism, you know, as like as just like a a wave of love that's always gonna be there and affection, you know, right. that like I never I I didn't particularly do that with my other dog, with my with my German Shepherd that passed away, but it it didn't fill the hole, but it it like gave me comfort. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And also just getting like these like I have two new cats as well. You know, so does like you know like me teaching my cats how to fetch and how to do tricks which i think i think it's i don't even know how the how the hell that makes sense you know like a dog like a cat two cats playing fetch but right. either way like just me putting this time into like them you know like allows me to kind of cope and like process the love i the love and the memories i had with my dog who passed right. away so now think of think of someone who is homeless is a drug addict, has no family, how do they cope? Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't see a lot of healthy ways to quote, like to cope, you know? Yeah. But I see a dog being a very, like, great potential. Right. Which, you know, I, I see it a lot. I see a lot of, you know, like homeless people, like with companions, you know, a lot of right. them mainly dogs as well, you know, mm -hmm. who just stay with them and like are with them to the end. Yeah, because that's honestly their only friend. And sometimes they take care of that dog better than they take care of themselves. But it's just so beautiful, like where I work to see these people. Because, oh, something I didn't mention in order to be a patient at my hospital, you have to be uninsured, no insurance which means most of these people are unemployed or homeless. So they have to be down bad. Yes. Wow. If you have insurance, we you can't be in our hospital. Like you go somewhere else to a nicer place, you know? Yeah. Wow. Wow, that actually does like does a big difference with the with the the person, the people that you're going to be with, you know, that you're treating and your patients. Wow, that's Yeah, that is intense. So we work with 
probably 80% of the people are homeless there. Um, when I was a student interviewing for this position, I remember my boss saying, okay, you're outside of a 7-Eleven at midnight and you see all these people, you know, homeless, talking to themselves. How are you going to run a group with 15 of those or with 30 of those patients? Because that's literally the reality of the type of people we work with every day. Wow. So how, what do you do then? Yeah. So believe it or not, these are some of the realest and most humbled people, the people who have struggled so much. And the people that, and those are the people that we work with because they're, you know, they, they're, they live a very sad life. They are homeless. They, a lot of them suffer from abuse and trauma. So they're so thankful for us. So when they love us, they love OT. Everyone in, in our, in our hospital loves OT because we give them activities to do while they're essentially trapped in a hospital. And when they come into a hospital, think about how scary it must be because you might be a high functioning patient, someone who's quote unquote normal, but is suicidal versus someone who is homeless, talking to themselves, you know, dirty, stuff like that. There's, there's, we get a variety of different patients. We get some who are very high functioning. We get some who are very, very low functioning and are, you know, something simple as them kicking a ball, a soccer ball is their biggest accomplishment, you know, versus someone who is able to write a full poem, you know. So it's we just get a variety of different patients. And these patients that you get are both voluntary and involuntary, right? Like they're, or are they're, they checked in or how oh, does that work? So like when they're admitted to when right. they're admitted to your services. So I would say ninety percent, ninety to ninety five percent are involuntary. Oh wow. So they're forced to be there. They're picked up by the police because of whatever it is that they were doing or their family reported them because maybe they were being aggressive in their home or something like that. There's maybe 5% that are voluntary where they personally call 911 because they're suicidal or they personally call because I had, I had a patient who said he called because he was suicidal. However, he wasn't actually suicidal. He just needed a place to stay. So he kind of knew the system, you know? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I it, it's so interesting how you're saying that these are like the realest people that you meet, you know, because it makes sense because, you know, what do they have to lose? You know, I feel like a lot of times when people put on a face, you know, it's because they're trying to protect something, whether it's their ego, their integrity, their truth, you know, yeah. that they don't want people like they don't want others to know. Yeah. We see patients become very vulnerable and I see them at their most vulnerable moments. You know, I just recently worked with someone who it's his first psychotic break. Um, he doesn't know what's going on. You know, he was kind of freaking out. Like he's like, what, what's happening to my body? Cause he's a young, young person who lived a normal life up until now, up until now he's experiencing these mental health symptoms that do he doesn't even know how to control them. And you know, he was asking me for advice. Um, we get we get patients, you know, cry to us because they just need someone to talk to and they just need someone to hear them. They don't have that at home or they don't even know where they could find that, you know. So like like you said, like we have to be extremely patient with them because 
we have to think of them first. They are going through something so difficult that it's so hard to imagine. And I hate saying like, I know how you're feeling or, you know, stuff like that because I don't, you know, I've never been in a, in a psych hospital and they have asked me like, have you been, you know, do you hear voices? Do you, have you suffered from this? And I'm like, well, no, but blah, 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 you know? So it's a really, really hard job. However, we're very supported with everyone who works there. So there's OT, psychology, social work, case management, and psychiatric services there. So we all work together to work with all of our patients and to discuss their case, you know, to see where's the best place for them to go if they don't even have a home, you know, or how how are they doing in group, Marissa? Tell us how they're doing so that way we could kind of see their progression, you know, so we all work together. Yeah. How often, like, how often are you collaborating in an everyday basis or is it like a meeting thing where you guys brief every morning? How does that work? It's every morning. Exactly. So there's three psychiatrists and every single morning they have meetings. And in every single meeting, there's one, one person from each discipline in that meeting. So there's one OT in this meeting, one OT in the other meeting, one OT in the other meeting, one psychologist here, one psychologist here, one psychologist here. And this is where we all talk. So three separate meetings? Yes. Okay. Because there's three separate doctors. Oh, okay. Yes. So we each get assigned to a personal doctor. So I'm assigned to one specific doctor and I, they're each assigned to different caseloads because in our hospital, we have about 50 patients. So we have to split that up, split that up amongst three. And that psychiatrist is in charge of each of their patients. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely what you're doing um, isn't really like, it's not a, clearly not an easy job, you know, and I think there's a really fine balance between patience, empathy, but also strength, you know? Yeah. So how do you yourself like deal with this in an everyday basis? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I always say like not everyone could do, can work in this setting because it's very emotionally draining sometimes um, because we hear some of these patients' stories and it's so awful what this person may have gone through. However, something that helps me get through it is just trying not to get too connected or too blocked. I don't, I'm trying not, I try not to get that in the way of having like a good therapy session, you know? Okay. So I always try to obviously be empathetic about their situation, but I don't let that take over. Cause I, when I was a student, I remember working with a patient where I almost wanted to cry because of how sad his story was. However, I had to hold it back because I'm like, okay, I'm here to help the person. You know, I'm not here to to dwell on their story. I'm here to help them. And it's like, okay, what can we do? You know, what can we do to make this person's day here just a little bit better? And then also we have fun. You know, what we do is really fun. We have really fun activities there. Like one of our groups is called Leisure, where we literally play sports with the patients. I've played ping pong with them. I was a vo- I'm a volleyball player, so I play volleyball with them. So we like to have fun in our job because we don't want to take it so serious all the time because it's such a heavy place to work at. Yeah. Um, also, sometimes I hate saying this, but at the same time, sometimes we have to make jokes, you know, about the patients a little bit, not in a bad way, but in a way where 
is kind of to lift our spirits up and to not take our job so seriously all the time because that's the only way you could get through this job is by smiling and kind of joking and kind of having fun with it. Yeah, and I mean, just... I feel like also, um, you know, these people who have experienced these really like hard times, sometimes dark humor is a coping mechanism it's, for that. It, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. You exactly. know? Yeah. Cause that was like, like I used to have dark humor. Like I, I, I used dark humor for lupus before and for a blood clot in my lungs, you know, like I, yeah, like I totally understand how you reverse a sad situation to make yourself laugh because it's something that you could potentially laugh about in the future, you right. know? Right. And we always, we, we always try to instill that in our students as well. Like, cause you know, we get students all the time to help us out and we don't want them to think of us like as these, you know, bratty OTs who laugh at the patients. Like, no, that's not, that's not what we're doing. Trust, trust us. We kind of just have to take a little break before actually entering and diving into the, the the problems that these patients are experiencing, because some you have to laugh about it, you have to, otherwise you're going to overwhelm yourself. Yeah, that's very funny how you're saying other students, because now the student has become the master. Yes. So what are what's some advice you could give to these people that are coming into this environment that could be sometimes overwhelming? Well, I like to tell new students not to be afraid. Because you're always going to be protected. I'm like, you're always safe here. We have so much support here where you do not have to think that, you know, you're in danger or whatever it is. We have security staff all the time. You, they, they want to protect us. You know, their job is for us to be protected. I also tell them, have fun with it. Like I said, have fun with the groups that you're leading be passionate about the groups that you're leading. Like, for example, I want to lead in the future of volleyball group because that's something that I'm passionate in. So I want to teach them how to incorporate sports into their daily lives to cope with their their mental health, you know? And in our groups, we're not only teaching them how to cope, but we're teaching them how to improve their, like, impulse control, have good socialization skills with peers, um, improve their mood and their emotional regulation. So there's tons of things that that dive into it and all of this stuff is that is the stuff that the note taker is looking at so we're not only because sometimes you know christian he he kind of jokes with me all the time my boyfriend because he's like all you do is like play with the patients you know all you do is have fun at work and i'm like no there is so much more that we are seeing we are literally step by step breaking down every single thing that we do and we're looking at all of these little things that the patients are doing while they're in our group because we have to document all of that to show whether they're progressing or not. So when it comes to patients that aren't progressing, what are some like, like how is that addressed? Like, you know, because like you're saying, there's a three-person operation. There's a leader, there's the note taker, and then there's a person who's uh, like... Managing safety materials. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for someone who isn't progressing and who's kind of like at a plateau, that's something that we would bring up in those meetings with the doctors. Mm, So, because the doctors will ask, how are they doing in group? And we will tell them, well, you know, they're not socializing. They're not engaging. They're sitting by themselves. They're still talking to themselves. All of that stuff is reported to the psychiatrist. So that way the psychiatrist knows, okay, 
Maybe I need to put them on a different medication. Maybe I need to increase their medications. So when it gets to that point, obviously we're, we're trying to identify something to get them out of that, some sort of activity, or maybe it could be a song, you know, something to, to mm. improve their performance. But we can only do so much as occupational therapists. That's kind of where we have to report it to psychiatrists and they have to kind of work their magic, you know. So with that being said, what are the different avenues of treatment? So you're, right now you mentioned occupational therapy. You mentioned psychiatry. What else is there? Psychology. Psychology, okay. Psychology, they do groups plus one-on-one therapy sessions. So that's, so for example, I had a patient recently who, you know, he wanted to talk to me about what he was going through, his feelings and all of that. And to a certain point, I was able to help help with that. But then, you know, that's not my profession is to have psychology therapy services with them. So at a certain point, I told him, I was like, you know, you're going to meet with your psychologist. You could talk to him more. They're going to meet with you one-on-one and you could talk to him more about that. You know, I kind of have to refer it. There's also... um social work and case management, they're the ones who try to find a place for them to discharge. Because if someone's homeless, where are they going to go? We can't send them back to the streets. Yeah. So it's up to the patient whether they want to go to a shelter, a homeless shelter. That's kind of the worst place to go, I would say. Um, But sometimes patients just, that's where they want to go. And we can't force them to go anywhere else, you know? However, there's another program called CRTP, which stands for Crisis Residential Treatment Program. This program is probably the best program for patients who are homeless or patients who maybe want to get extra help for them to go because they're going to help them with like SSI, get Medi-Cal, get a job, housing, stuff like that. So it helps them move forward in their life. Wow. Yeah. How long is, like, is there an average time of, like, patients being at being in your clinic? Yes. So when they get admitted, they're admitted on a 5150 hold, which is three days minimum. Mi- no, maximum. Maximum of three days. However, if the psychiatrist feels like they're still under the danger to self, danger to others, gravely disabled, um, category, then he could extend it to a 5250 hold, which is 14 days. That could be even extended into a 30 day hold. And I think that could be even extended to like 120 days. But on average, patients are probably there, I would say on the 14 day hold. So like two weeks. Oh, wow. So you're constantly switching on yes. like switching different people. There's new patients every single day. And is there a way for you to like, kind of like keep track on like where are, where your previous patients have gone to? Yeah, so we, like, when we meet with the doctors every day, that's when we get to recognize where their discharge plan is. So we always are updated every single day, whether this person's going to a shelter, whether this person going to a program, whether this person's going back home. We have all of that information every single day, and it's always updated. And then also when they discharge, you know, as our profession, we have to write their discharge note. And in there, we have to write kind of how they were in group, how they progressed, just a summary of what the patient did and how they, you know, how they were at their time in this unit, and then their discharge summary, you know, where they went. Yeah, that is so crazy how much, like, how much effort and time is put into treating these people, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, you previously mentioned outside of the recording how sometimes these patients get out of hand, you know, and it requires other people to step in. Yep. 
So let's talk a little bit about the scary stuff, right? Yeah, let's do it. Spicy. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it definitely gets very scary there sometimes. And whenever something like that happens, it kind of, it's kind of like an awakening. Like, oh, shoot, we, we still work in a psych hospital. You know, we still have to watch our back at all times. Um, for example, I remember just maybe about two weeks ago, I was in one of the meetings with the doctors. Then all of a sudden, I see the security inside of our meeting. He runs outside. He books it because he hears something going on. And you could hear in the hallway, everyone yelling, everyone running. People are screaming, clear the halls, clear the halls, like telling other patients, get out of the way. We see patients or we hear patients like getting beat up. Then finally, you know, once it's calmed down, someone returns into our room and, you know, we ask them like, is everything okay? And he said, well, you know, it was so-and-so he, he abused another patient. He's like, but the other guy probably broke his nose and like blood everywhere, you know? And when stuff like that happens, um, it's, it's kind of hard to like see because since that patient is so aggressive, they have to get injected with a, a shot, which I'm not sure what is in it, but it's approved by the psychiatrist and the nurses have to inject it and it basically sedates them. And then they have to be secluded in another room and they have to be restrained, either on two-point restraints, which is both of their wrists, or four-point, which is their wrists and their legs. Got it. And is it like in a stretcher that they're putting or like a chair, a bed? No, they're, it's in a bed. They, a bed. It's all in a bed, yeah. But they have to physically get basically like carried by the security staff in order for them to get there. Wow. And is there any particular place that this injection has to be put in or any their part butt. in the body? Their butt? <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah, it's on their butt. Okay. Have you seen it happen? You know what? No. I have not seen an injection happen I have not seen um, – I haven't seen that process of where they actually have to inject them and then put them in the room. I've only seen the before and the after. Okay. Yeah. But I've also – like some other things that I've seen, um, not only aggression, but I've seen patients who are so ugh, so sick that they hear voices in their heads and they're so tired of the voices, you know, because they, they might be – really mean voices they they could tell them to kill themselves or they could tell them all this negative stuff about themselves so i've seen patients literally punch themselves because they're trying to make the voices stop i've seen patients bang their head on the wall because they're trying to make these voices stop yeah part of that like i can't imagine like the stress that like someone would have to go through you know and also, like, the patience of, like, how long did it take for them to get to that point of, like, wanting to, like, physically shut themselves up? Oh, my God. I know. Exactly. Like, just imagine how how much pain they have to be going through in, in order for the only way for that to stop is by them physically hurting themselves. Yeah. And, well, I mean, that's when also the psychiatrist comes in, right? Hopefully giving them the proper medication. Yes. Yeah, that's something that we also talked about before recording on, like, just my view on, like, medication with mental health. And it's so interesting because I, I, it's like a whole different game compared to medication, for example, my lupus, you know? You know, like, the medication I take is meant to stabilize uh, my inflammation, you know, and, like, for me to stop, like, not feel pain. 
But when it comes to taking these like antipsychotics, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, like it, like it is really something delicate that you're playing with, which is your mind and your brain. Right. So, so obviously it is a very touchy subject because, you know, there's a lot of people who are against all of these medications. However, since working in a hospital, I have personally seen how someone getting on these medications, how much it has helped them. And it's literally saved their lives, you know? It could be as simple as a mood stabilizer to stabilize their mood because they fluctuate, you know, from being super, super depressed, being super, super manic, you know, so they need a a medication to stabilize this. And I've seen them change into a completely different person. And, you know, they're quote unquote normal people. You know, they just might need this little extra help with this medication. Um, Same with like patients who like, for example, the patients who hear voices, they get on antipsychotic medications to stop these voices. And that is, I don't know how else you could stop these voices from entering your, your, your head and your thoughts without the medications. Yeah, some people could cope with it and they could live with it because maybe the voices aren't that bad. Like maybe they're positive voices and they don't bother them. But for patients who have voices who, it's called command hallucinations, that means they're, they're telling them, kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself, or, you know, kill your family or whatever it is. It's so, so, so violent. Nothing's going to stop that. Only medication will. That is intense. Yeah. I, uh, I, I recently heard a quote. I'm not sure it was who it was from. I know Zachary Levi is one who said it. He's an actor who like, who he wrote a self-help self self-help book oh my god and he was saying that like you're not the voice of your mind you're the one that listens to it and i think that really plays into like what you're saying you know sometimes these people don't have control of what's being put into their head so i totally see how sometimes these medications can definitely help them figure themselves out you know when they they're it's, it's something that's completely out of their control and like that's it's so scary like it is it, it terrifies me it is it is terrifying and I see it every day and that's what blows my mind is like I work in a very very um not traditional setting that you know not a lot of people not a lot of people work with the patients I work and they don't see the things that I that I see and it's kind of a thing where it's like well you won't understand until you you see it yeah type of deal but however touching back on medication I have seen medication do the the opposite where it affects the patient so negatively where we have to report that to the doctor and they have to lower their medication or they have to um take it away completely or change it you know yeah that's something that's really interesting about how like people respond to things because everybody like though you know like it's there's a general general like data on how people like you know receive something though like you know every person is very very individual and unique so their responses could be completely different than what like the data might have showed yeah and something that is really hard to see is is when patients are are so you know heavily on medication and as a patient you trust your doctor right you trust that you're getting the proper dosage and the proper medications and stuff 
And it's very complicated for a patient to advocate for themselves. Um, sometimes we have to be those people to advocate for them, you know, because we see it. However, they might not even feel it. Or yeah. notice it. Or notice it. Yeah, that's like that's a moral like dilemma that sometimes I feel like that that that, that could be comp like morally compromising to maybe you know yeah because yeah like wow that I didn't even think of that yeah so like for example we had a patient recently he um was having really bad side effects he not only was withdrawing from drugs but he was having side effects with the medication where like he felt his jaw was locking. His heart was racing and even his body was becoming very stiff. He couldn't even control his tongue movements. And um, as the OTs, we had to advocate for him. Like, even though he did go tell the nurses and stuff, the nurses are just like, oh, he, he's um, med seeking because he's an addict. You know, he just wants more meds, more meds, more meds. However, we had to be like, look at him. He is not okay. You know, he could only do so much for himself, but... The more that we push and advocate for the patients, people will listen. And sometimes these are things you do behind the scenes. So, like, they probably don't even fully, like, understand, like, know what you're doing for them as well. Both. Sometimes we tell them, you know, sometimes we'll be like, you know what, we're talking to your nurse. Or sometimes we'll do it just without even notifying the patient. But um, but we do sometimes tell them because... It makes them feel grateful and thankful for us. And, you know? and like heard and yes. like someone's like validated, you know. Yes, because since they're so mentally ill, a lot of people don't believe them. However, there it, it's to a certain point where it's like, no, these people are, they're still people. They still have feelings. They still, they're not just manipulating you all the time, you know. Obviously, we do get patients who are manipulative, who are paranoid. And it's like, okay, like you're okay, you know, like this is not happening it's all in your mind. But every now and then we do get real cases where it's like, no, this is serious. We have to say something. Okay. So um, I just got a random question. I'm not sure how related it is to what we're talking about, but I'm very curious to see if, is there any like form of media or movies shows that depict an environment that you work in like appropriately? Like, cause the only one that I'm thinking of that, that like that, portrays this environment was jack nicholson's movie one flute into the cuckoo's nest i've seen that movie yeah like is there anything that comes into your mind so movies on psychiatric hospitals are very bad i could imagine yeah (laughs) they're very it's the reason why like we have these like these stigmas right yes they're very stigmatized they um they portray the patients being very dangerous very scary very psychotic which i will say yes we do get patients who do qualify under all those things however i always like to say they're still people they're still normal people you know and also like i feel like everyone nowadays knows someone with mental illness so that could be your family member you know how would you like it if they were portrayed as that that person you know that we see on social media and that we see in hollywood movies in hollywood movies we see them being i mean something that is really bad in hollywood is that safety is not a a considered in the hollywood movies like i see a lot of uh let's say therapists they work with a patient one-on-one and i'm like why is that person there by themselves with this patient they should have security with them you know or they'll be in 
a beautiful room with like a vase and flowers. And immediately my thought, I don't know if you've seen the movie Smile. It just came out. And it's kind of based on a psychiatric hospital patient too. And immediately when I saw the scene, there's a scene where she's meeting with like, I don't know, her therapist or someone. There's a vase in in with flowers on the table. And immediately, the first thing I said, I was like, she's going to kill, she's going to break that vase and she's going to kill herself. I already knew it before the scene even happened because at my work, we can't have any of that. We can't risk anything. Even patients, when they come in, we have to cut off their shoelaces because that could be a danger. Wow. Shoelaces, um, strings on like hoodies or like on their sweatpants, all of those have to be removed. Obviously, no scissors, no like thumbtacks, no glass, no vases, you know, no picture frames, nothing. It's super, super limited on the supplies that we could use because these patients could hurt themselves with it you know so that's another that's one thing that hollywood does a really bad thing portraying in a psych hospital they just have all of these you know fancy photographs and vases and beautiful chairs and stuff like that like that's not the reality of how how it is in psych hospitals yeah hollywood tends to traumatize everything so that makes a lot of sense yeah i was just very curious to see someone who's who's had you know first-hand experience in this environment and how like they feel about its portrayal I will say, though, that it is kind of like a, a, you know, jail environment, which is why I also did my doctorate uh, degree on enhancing the environment because I don't want it to feel like a jail. The patients are already locked up involuntarily and they literally are trapped, you know, until the doctor says they could leave. So that I will say it is like that. It's literally a long hallway with a bunch of rooms, like a hospital, a bunch of rooms. And then there's like a huge like patio where the patients could, you know, play games or, you know, whatever. But there's only one TV and that's about it. There's not a lot of stuff. Like us as occupational therapists, we're able to provide them with like... You're the entertainment. Yes. That's why they love us so much. You're the Netflix subscription. (laughs) That's why they love us so much. And that's why... um, they appreciate us so much. You know, we get tons of appreciation from the patients because they're like, man, I don't know what I would do without you guys because your mind will still, will go crazy and will run and run and run in all these thoughts if you didn't have something to occupy your time. Wow. I like, I like, I like your use of word right there. Yeah. Occupy. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause that's ultimately what they need to do when they get out of the hospital. They have to find things to occupy their times. They have to find meaningful occupations to occupy their time in order for them to cope and manage their stress, anxiety, whatever it is. Yeah. And do you ever see like patients returning? Yes. Yeah. So that's a whole other topic on our mental health system because it's so messed up here in California. Um. We see a lot of patients return because the system failed them, you know. They they go to a shelter or a program and they just stop their medication because there's not a a next like a next step. They still need someone to monitor them. Just because they leave the hospital, they they're still very sick. We need a system where once they leave our hospital they could go to a program, right? 
But after that, they there needs to be some sort of system, some sort of structure, some sort of like supportive housing because it's hard for them to live on their own because they still need someone to kind of guide them and to keep track of their medications and, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like a big brother or sister in AA, you know, like just someone that like they can be that can hold them accountable. Yeah. So it is unfortunate because we do see a lot of patients return because, you know, they they didn't have a place to go. And once you stop your medications, that's it. And especially because when you get on your medications and you feel yourself getting better, your mind thinks, oh, I could get off these medications. I don't need them anymore. However, that's going to affect it's going to affect you because you were on them for whatever amount of time and they were working. That doesn't mean you have you stop because then you're going to slowly go back to how it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel that with my lupus and medication, you know, like I ran out of my prescription in the month of October. I couldn't get any like refills. And within three weeks, I started feeling all my symptoms again. Like it's pretty crazy. And right. like, that's kind of a misconception that people have with medication and sometimes like like they think that like just because they feel good now they're always going to feel good you know but sometimes the medication is meant to stabilize not just like fix you know right it's not i mean some are some are temporarily but when you need it to live a happy fulfilling and meaningful life it's not something that you could just stop like that and that's something that i always emphasize to patients too because when they're in our hospital they the number one thing on their mind is how can I get out? How can I get out? What's the fastest way I could leave? Have people tried escaping? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we every time we walk into the, hosp- the the door, we always have to check, are there patients nearby? Because a patient, if they're nearby and they see us walking in, they will run. They will try to run. Thankfully, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen a patient do that. But we do have like, because we communicate with everyone, right? So we do have like, let's say the doctor say, Marissa, this patient's an AWOL risk. Write them down. So we have to write them down. Like, okay, guys, like, just so you know, we have to watch out on this patient because he's tried escaping. We even have, um, we have these chairs. Like, all of our chairs in the hospital are like, I don't even know, like 30 pounds. They're heavy. They're heavy, heavy chairs. And there's a reason for that because I asked it, I'm like, why are these chairs so heavy every time we have to move them? Why do you think? Because when they were regular chairs, a patient literally stacked them all the way up to the top and escaped through the roof of the patio. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> they think of everything. And and that's why that's why it's, it's the way it is, you know? Yeah. Damn. Like, like I was going to say, like one of the scariest things that could ever happen while being on the job is losing your keys. Oh, damn. Because that's, We've had that happen where the whole unit has to be locked down because someone lost their keys. Because just imagine, they could literally escape and have other patients escape with them. We've had patients who want to gang up to escape because there's more of them than there is of us. So they've literally like try to create like a game plan and like say, you know, at this time when that door opens, let's all ambush the door. Like, you know, they think of everything. Wow. Yeah. How much uh, security is around in your like whenever you're on, like when you're whenever you're on the job? Whenever there's groups, we have at least one security guard with us at all times because 
if there's a patient who is having behaviors while they're in our group, we have to have someone that could take them out safely. Um, however, in the hospital, there's at least a security guard on every like aisle that we have. I don't know how many there are, but there's always people on the hospital floor, at least like 20, pa- 20 people at once. So there's always, always, always people. However, there there have been moments where we're running a group and then we realize, oh shoot, we're completely by ourselves and we have to go look for someone. And it could just be because maybe there's something going on on the unit where that staff is distracted because they're they're doing something else, you know, with another patient and they don't even realize our group is going on right now. Wow. Yeah. I actually have a crazy story I could talk about about that. Well, do it right now. We're here. <laughs> so I wasn't a part of it. This happened a few years ago. Um, basically, a patient killed another patient while both of them being locked up. A patient was able to kill another patient. While they're both like locked up in separate rooms? So what happened... I wasn't here when it happened. It was a few years ago. But what happened was all of the, there was multiple things going on. Like there was, a, you know, one patient being aggressive here, another patient being aggressive here, another patient being aggressive here. So there was multiple people already attending to different things because the unit was so acute right now, right? So while everyone was attending to all of these things, that's when this patient saw an opportunity to assault another guy to the point where he murdered him wow yeah and it was a huge obviously a huge lawsuit a huge thing against the hospital it made us look very bad obviously because this patient who ended up getting murdered he was a young a young a young patient who was there because he was i think having suicidal thoughts or something and honestly you could look it up it's online if you look up Kedron Health murder, it'll pop up. How long has this um, this facility been operation operating? I'm, I'm not sure. I would have to look it up. <laughs> so it established in October 22nd, 1965, which is almost 60 years, because we're at 2022 right now. Wow. 60 years. That's a lot of history. Yeah, I'm already looking at the Google. It's pretty <laughs> spicy with the murder. I see yeah. that. See, I told you. But um, we are trying to expand the hospital. So actually, within the next year, we already have plans on like hiring like 20 other OTs. Right now, our team of OTs, I think there's like eight of us, eight to 10 or something. But we're going to double that because we're expanding the hospital to not only just one floor, but to I think like three or five or something like you're building it higher yes building it higher and each floor is going to be a specific level of um acuity so maybe one floor is going to be patients who are very 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 acute patients who are low functioning versus patients who are not as acute they're functional and high functioning then there's going to be patients like a geriatric uh floor patients who are older uh, a not like a teenage floor patients who are from like 18 to 21 years old so that's going to be coming within like the next i think in the summer is when they're going to start constructing wow yeah. that 
that's actually really that's so good that they're still like investing resources into this you know because i don't hear too much about a lot of these type of facilities that you're in you know right also let alone like them renovating and investing you know like it's just something that unfortunately our society here in the united states california in general just don't really pay attention to right or care about right yeah no it's awesome and that's that's the other thing is that there's so much more that needs to be implemented in our mental health here because there should be more resources for them. They should not feel lost, you know, in their journey to receiving help because a lot of times they are lost and there's just not enough people who are willing to to do this type of work um, or most importantly, there's not enough money. I think that's that's probably a bigger thing than yeah. not enough people, you know, because yeah. I'm pretty sure there's people out there that like can see themselves going into the line of work, but it's just the resources of learning about it, going through all the school, finding somewhere that's going to keep you financially stable. Like, yeah, just all of that's really, really difficult. Yeah. yeah. And like, for example, mental health, occupational therapists, I think there's only like 4% of us who are actually in the field of mental health for occupational therapy. Because in occupational therapy, you could go, you know, you could go into rehab in a hospital, you could go into schools, you could go into clinics, so many things, but there's about only 4% who go into mental health. 4%, wow. And mental health is one of the lowest paying jobs for occupational therapists. Yeah. Are you uh, public or private? Uh, we're a nonprofit. Nonprofit, okay. Yeah. So that's the other thing. It's like, if we're so in need, why are we the lowest paid? And also, why why isn't there more people, you know, that need to be here? Yeah, that is really interesting how people kind of all fall under different, like, ways of needing treatment, you know, and how little resources there are. Because also when it comes to, like, drug addiction and people who are suffering with just like drugs in general you know like i'm pretty sure that's probably a portion of like the patients that you're dealing with you know whether it's drug withdrawal or just straight up addiction like not knowing how to face that like how how does that work here yeah so i would say at least maybe half of the patients we work with half of them are innately mentally ill meaning it runs in their family meaning they're not even doing drugs, but they're still very sick. However, there's the other half where they're mentally ill because of their history with drugs, because they've been on drugs for so long, it has affected their brain and their mental illness. That's why they're there. What, um, okay, because drug is also a very broad spectrum, you know, like, is there any particular type of drug that you feel leads people down this road yes meth 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 damn yeah no that one's definitely it's very heavy but when we get a lot of patients that are admitted um on meth and those are the patients like if you literally look up the side effects of meth it will say psychosis um auditory hallucinations stuff like that because that's literally the side effect of meth and when you're on that for years and years and you're using it every day it will mess mess you up forever and we have seen them 
be stable on their medications. However, they are not a quote unquote normal person. You know, they're still a person who needs help, needs someone to watch over them outside of this hospital. You know, once they leave this hospital, they can't live on their own because they're not safe because they're just so sick. Yeah, no, drugs are really, are really intense. Like, is, I mean, I think it's probably one of the easiest ways people can lose track on, like, their sanity, you know, because especially once they start getting really comfortable with being in this, uh, at a certain state of mind, you know, they kind of don't, like, it kind of distracts them from real life problems, you know, so they just kind of always want to stay in this. Exactly. And, you know, we see meth, we see a lot of, like, THC, and that's a, a a touchy complicated one because yeah elaborate on that yeah because we we see thc you know calm people down be um what's the word i'm searching for like help like cancer patients like stuff like that it 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 does have its benefits so it's hard for us to tell them to like quit the thc because there are some benefits however the one thing that i do tell them is when you're taking medications for mental illness, the THC will affect the course of the medication. So I'm not a psychiatrist, obviously. I don't have the education on that. But they try to teach us, the psychiatrists try to teach us why THC is bad for those patients because they're already on such a high dosage of whatever medication they are. So the THC will affect the progression of, of the meds. And also THC is not a healthy way for them to cope because it puts them in a state where they kind of just want to forget their life, kind of just want to escape their problems, stuff like that. They're not, they're using the THC as their medication. Does that make sense? Yeah. I I mean, I kind of identified with that before, um, with the whole lupus thing. Like whenever I'll start feeling a flare up and start feel pain, I would I would get high mm-hmm. because it would kind of like, alleviate it, it it would help me with my pain but it would also get me distracted from like the anxiety of hoping the pain doesn't escalate and like I won't have to go to the ER or like, any of this stuff you know yeah. so that's like that was really interesting how you said that you know and I have a question when it comes to other forms of drugs have you ever dealt with patients with other um with other hallucinogenics or like psychedelics you know like like LSD or psilocybin mushrooms or ketamine or anything like that? Um, A few, yeah. We recently, I did have a patient who he's very involved in like music, very involved in like creating music. So he uses shrooms to kind of get into that creative mindset. You know, how the famous musicians used to, the Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, all of them, they all use some sort of psychedelics to take their mind to a different place to create this amazing artwork so with him i understood why he was doing it however his situation is so different because he's very traumatized by the stuff he went through he abuse and stuff like that plus he's very suicidal plus he's very um he has a history of like these this mental health issues so it's not very beneficial for him to be doing these psychedelics so that's why it's important for him to find his creative expression his creative mind for his music 
in a different way, in a healthier way. Okay. And speaking of psychedelics, I do know that, you know, in some parts of the United States, whether it's in the East Coast or now in Washington, I think in Colorado as well, they're starting to introduce psilocybin therapy as a treatment to people. Like, do you see that potentially coming into what you guys do here in California? I have no clue. I have no clue. I I don't even know how to speak on that because I know there are so many benefits on those type of, like, drugs and the f- effect of our mental health. But, you know, obviously to get it approved, it's very it's – it's a process. So I don't know what the future is on that. And like I said, like, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't know the effects of, like – yeah, I feel like a psychiatrist would definitely oh, yeah. be more... Like, Have a yeah. podcast with a psychiatrist and they will definitely touch base on the medications, the importance of that, and then the importance of like mixing it with drugs. Yeah. But were you aware of that though? That psilocybin therapy is starting to become like a practice that people do? No. Tell yeah. me more. Yeah. So um, like one of the first research uh, facilities is actually John Hopkins, their center for uh, um, psychedelic and consciousness research where... They've had patients with multiple, with all like different backgrounds, you know, like some people suffering of depression, some people suffering of, T- of PTSD, and they've given them doses of psilocybin mushrooms, you know, and the statistics that they've gotten have mostly been positive, you know, about like eight or, or seven out of 10 of these people tend to have long lasting positive, um, long, like long term benefits from, from the experience, you know, and then the other 20 to 30 percent that did not have a positive long-lasting experience did not have any long-lasting negative experiences Mm -hmm. so it either extremely benefited them in their life or it just like or it did nothing bad to them right you know and and it's like it's really interesting because it's really about treating the brain you know like what psilocybin has been used for ptsd was kind of to help rewire these neurons so that nothing's triggered with these with with these uh, people who are triggered like through like you know, like fireworks and stuff like that, you know, mm. or even helps with addiction, you yeah. know, like with, with nicotine addiction, alcohol, alcohol addiction. Like some people have tried psilocybin therapy to get rid of this addiction. And there has been cases where it worked, yeah. you know, so like it's definitely something that's still fresh ground, new ground. There's still a lot of research coming to it. But I mean, eventually, you know, since you're barely starting to this, you could see the evolution of this being taken place into people. And I, that's pretty interesting. Imagine like 30 years from now, we have that incorporated yeah, in, like, in all right, treatment. Guys, yeah, right. Like <laughs> you're just having like a little Zen garden there, you know, like, yeah, it's yeah, it's just it, that that fascinates me just because like I feel like there's real there's a stigma between uh, with also a lot of natural and holistic approaches to medicine. Right. You know, especially when pharmaceutical companies you know these corporations want to make money you know they tend to draw away from these natural forms of medicine you know and that's one thing also that i think is difficult to kind of find a balance when it comes to telling patients to be mm-hmm. aware with thc you know mm-hmm. like messing with these with with these met like with, with the medication you know like for like for their mental illness right yeah it's a it's definitely something that I feel is very particular to each patient and something that it's it's you you won't understand or know what to tell them until you see the effects of I guess on them because yeah some patients I mean that's the other that's the conversation on medication some patients might not even need this 
simple mood stabilizer. Instead, they need some sort of holistic therapy or some some sort of something else, you know. But it's very hard because in order for the patients to discharge the hospital, that's one of the number one things is for them to be on their medication. Because if you want to go to like a program, for example, like the programs I mentioned where they could get SSI and stuff like that, they need to see this patient being on their medications. And if they're not, you're not going to get accepted. Got it. So it, how like, how does it get in? Like, how does the process of getting to the program work? Is it like an application? Is there like a screening process? Like how like do you like do you know about this? A like, little bit. The social workers are the ones in charge of this. But um, if a patient expresses interest in a program, um, a CRTP crisis residential treatment program, or even like a drug program, a lot of the times they have to first get interviewed. And I know in that interview process, the patient has to be aware and have insight on their mental illness. They have to accept that they need help and they have to admit, you know, I am depressed or I am suicidal. If they think nothing's wrong with them, they're not going to get accepted. Yeah, I mean the whole point of accepting also is really really hard and you know when you brought a really interesting topic which is suicide you know i i feel like that might be more common than people think you know like like whether it's the thoughts of it the, the temptation or the action that's being taken into place you know like there's different ways that people try to do it yeah you know some some are more effective than others you know but like yeah like i definitely feel like suicide is something that uh like how how often or how common is it in in your area? Every day. Every day. Every day, there's a patient who's suicidal, and that's the reason why they're admitted. It's a very complicated topic because a lot of the times, patients who, let's say, are voluntarily and they call because they're suicidal, they might be having these feelings of suicide, but the fact that they called and wanted help that means they're most likely not to the point where they're going to end their life also people who who might say they're suicidal they might be saying it but just the fact that they're saying it means that they're aware that something's wrong and that they need to get help it's the patients who cover up or don't say it or don't admit or act as if, you know, they're okay. Sometimes those are the ones who are truly planning something, you know? Yeah. I mean, wow. Just the, you know, the ability to plan something in the future, something so small like that does a big step to, you know, like something like suicide when it in your life because, you know, maybe I, I have never really, I've never gone to the extreme point of, of like suicide where I actually attempted something. But, you know, when you're in that really dark space, you know, I, I don't know if it's because I, I wonder if it's because they're so in the moment, they don't care about the future or like, they're just so scared of the future. You know, like that's all they're thinking about. Like, like I, there's nothing out there for me. It's, and I think it's different for everybody, obviously, you know? Yeah. And it's one of those topics where it's like, we can't say because we 
we don't know what what they're feeling. Yeah. You true. won't you won't know what that person is feeling because it's never happened to you. So it's like, you know, obviously we may picture these we'll put these stories together of why they might do it or why they might be thinking of this or how can how can they do that? They come from such a perfect family, they live a perfect life or whatever whatever. But it's like we we can't even fathom what they might be going through in their head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're looking from the outside. You yeah. know, we don't know what's going on the inside. Yeah. It's a really, really um, deep topic that I think, you know, maybe everyone knows someone who committed su- suicide. I feel like at least everyone knows one person who committed suicide. Yeah. And it's extremely, it's just so heavy that we we may not ever understand it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And, you know, like since you've literally dedicated your life to mental health, you know, I have a question for you. Like, what are what are some things you feel can help society with normalizing, like seeking help and like acknowledging mental health? I think just talking about it, like being vulnerable and talking about the way you're feeling and recognizing that okay i need to take a break or i need to take a step back from my day-to-day day-to-day life you know um i actually have a coworker who she's bipolar she's an ot but she's bipolar and she also is a recovering alcoholic so she actually had to take a three-week leave from work because she recognized i'm not okay not only was she craving you know the alcohol plus the stress of work plus her diagnosis of bipolar she was able she's obviously you know highly functionally functioning and she could recognize when she needs a break but just recognizing when you need to stop and take a break from you know your day day-to-day living is so important you have to like you have to recognize okay i need to take care of myself first I can't take care of myself or I can't take care of others or, you know, go to my job and do all of this stuff if you're not taking care of yourself first. So I feel like that's like the number one thing that we have to realize and be okay with in society because I feel like society wants us all to live this perfect, you know, social media world when it's not. We all suffer. We all go through things. We all have, whether it's family problems personal issues, medical issues, we all go through something. But you have to be okay to take a break and fix that. And and you can't move forward until you acknowledge that. And same with like talking about it, you know? If you're feeling some sort of way, don't hold it in. It's okay to talk to if you don't want to talk to your family, get a therapist. Like it's okay to talk to someone about it. Do you, do you have a therapist? I don't. I personally Girl, in your in your line of work, I think one would help you. Yeah, I, I don't have a therapist. I have considered um going because I you know, I feel like I went through like pretty traumatic experiences with my dogs actually. Um it still like haunts me sometimes and like the guilt of it. And also like my sister, she um is a cancer survivor yeah my mom's a cancer survivor so i personally have not gone to a therapist but my mom has and my sister has because of their own personal um issues and and you know things that they have to overcome 
And they they have such positive things to say about it because not only is this person a professional and like able to give you advice and everything, but they're just someone to talk to and to listen to. And you could tell them things that you can't tell your family or like a normal person. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that like your job doesn't offer that because my aunt is a marriage family therapist working with like children, you know, and child trauma. And all her therapists go to like the supervisor and, and like on a monthly basis to kind of like have their own therapy session. Well, we do meet with our supervisor every month. Um, he's not a therapist. He's an OT. But we do meet with him every month because since we work in such a, you know, a different setting, he wants to check in on us. How are you? Not Let's not talk about work. How are you doing? Are you okay? Once once you recognize that, okay, you're you're doing okay, then we could talk about work. How is your work? How can we be better? How can we support you more? How what are what are some things you're struggling with? Stuff like that. So I do appreciate that he meets with us every month because we are able to share our feelings and have that relationship with him. And, you know, it's confidential. He's not going to tell the whole team about what I told him in our session or whatever. But I mean, it would be nice if we if we did have some sort of resources for the employees like to have therapy and kind of just let it out because, you know, we work in such a, a an acute place that requires a lot of yeah, our it's an intense know. environment yeah you it's know? very intense yeah like that feels like something that could benefit you guys you know but yeah i totally agree though like therapy is something that uh unfortunately like it's not as easily accessible as as it should be you know like it's extremely expensive sometimes like, your like your insurance doesn't even cover it you know like yeah how much can people do? But then also that's when what you said, you know, like talking about it, you know, because even if you don't have a therapist, you can't afford one to still talk to your friends, you know, because yeah. something that I noticed about these stories that you've been sharing is a lot of he, you know, like, is there a lot of men? Like, is it like, like, what's the, what's the proportion? That's a good, I didn't realize I kept saying that, huh? Um, I think, I think it, you know, I don't know. I, because there are females. There's tons of females as well. I think I just naturally gravitate to saying he and to rec- picking up all of these stories with the, the guys. I don't know what it is. Maybe I personally just work with more guys. Um, but Well, I, I mean, men's mental health, I think, needs a lot more work compared that's to what women. I, that's what, you know, I think it's because for males, they reach to the point where they're, they they can't talk about it or they, they don't want to admit it or whatever. So it gets to the, the point where it's very severe and which is why they get in a hospital like they do at my job. So I feel like maybe that's why I see I, – I recognize the guys a little bit more because it's so heavy there. But I didn't even – I honestly did not even realize. And I, I can't – I think there are more males in the facility than there are females. Well, actually, there is, like, for sure. Now that I think about it, the male unit – we're split up versus the male and the female. The females only have maybe like fifteen beds out of the fifty patients. Yeah, that you- and the rest wow. are males. I just yeah. Now that I'm talking about it, I just realized the male unit is much larger than the females. How has there been education on emotional intelligence with these people? Because I feel like that's what kind of leads towards this like 
this problem with mental health, you know, emotional intelligence. Are you familiar with what it is? Uh, explain it a little bit more. So emotional intelligence is the ability to kind of understand how you're like, not just your emotions, but also how to respond and react to it. You know, it, emotional intelligence, it's kind of changing the reaction from instinct to critical thinking, Hmm. you know, like instead, like, you know, like if you get mad instead of yelling, like take a breath and say like, why am I mad? You know? And it's, it's something so simple, but like, a lot of people do not learn that in, yeah. at a young age and like it leads towards to these extreme situations you know yeah so we we call it um their impulse control so that's yeah. that's something that we see in our groups whether they have impulse control or not whether they could manage that and their emotional regulation so can they regulate their emotions appropriately yeah no that is yeah because yeah we have patients where I think we had a patient where she wanted, she had her hand raised because she wanted to talk and we told her multiple times, let's wait for other people. Other people are going to go first and we'll get to you. She could not handle it. She got up, she cussed us out, she cussed everyone out and she ran away. Like she left the room. And that obviously is poor impulse control and poor emotional regulation. And so I feel like that topic is also probably more discussed when the patient meets one-on-one with their psychologist. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the best time to be able to talk to these people. Cause I mean, this is more personal, but yeah, like I definitely feel that men's mental health needs a lot of work, especially when it comes to emotional intelligence, because naturally, you know, at least Hispanics, you know, like the women tend to be more nurturing. So naturally they have a higher emotional intelligence IQ compared to men. That's a good way to put it. I never thought of it that way. Well, that's something that I learned in communication studies is just right. the ability to like when it comes to relationships, how people talk, you know, with conflicts and conflict management. It all has to do with like how familiar are you with the situations that you're in, you know? Like I personally try my best to see the positive in things, you know? So when I get upset, you know, like sometimes my voice would naturally, like the volume would naturally increase, mm-hmm. you know, not intentionally. But if I'm able to like be aware of that, I'll change the volume, you know. Right. But it's like it's something that like it's simple, but it takes a lot of practice to be able to like understand how to do it. Right. You know, because if anger makes you like if anger makes you yell, simple like the quote unquote simple answer is don't yell. Right. You know, but like how hard is it to not yell if you're in that emotional state? So I, the whole reason why I got into mental health is because I actually have an aunt who's bipolar and she suffered with it since she was like 14 and she's almost 40 now. And even now I have to try to teach her, plus my family, we have to try to teach her to have patience, to improve her impulse control, to improve, manage her emotions because she'll go from zero to a hundred like that, you know, and that's why she's on these heavy medications and she's been on them for years. And that's why she can't live a normal day-to-day life because of how strong her, her bipolar disorder is. And that's one thing that I tell her, I'm like, you have to get involved in activities because if you're just locked up in your room all day, you're going to be depressed. You're going to be, you're not going to be okay. So she, we always try to get her involved in, in things, whether it's going to like community classes or going to the gym or like artwork and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, I definitely feel like that's the one thing that people 
want like they, they like that's one thing that like should be more a priority here you know because you know like recently there's been a shift in united states or just overall society of focusing on physical health especially with the recent obesity epidemic that's happening you know but like the sneaky part is not being like visibly like noticeable and that's what mental health like that's how it's so sneaky you know so something that this is kind of funny but i was watching the selena gomez documentary and she talks about how she suffered from well she has lupus lupus, and she also has um i think she's bipolar she's also bipolar and she talks about her experience even she got admitted into a psychiatric hospital for suicidal thoughts and she talks about how her goal is to get a a bill passed, I believe, where we have mental health courses since elementary school. Yeah, there should be. You 100% know, like- there should be some sort of a course that talks about it's okay to talk about your emotions. If you're feeling this way, this is what you could do. If you're feeling this way, this is what you could do. This is what you shouldn't do, you know, since we're little kids, but there's not. Yeah, that's... um. I have the same idea with when it comes to just like simply learning communication studies, you know, like the things that I learn in, in my bachelor's degree, bachelor's degree are things that I feel kids should be learning, you know, like how, like literally like what is, what, what does a healthy relationship look like? Mm -hmm. What does, what does conflict management look like? You know, like, like, you know, how, like, what are your conflict styles? Like, these are things that people should be learning at such a young age, but like, just unfortunately, it's just a lack of resources that there is. And I feel like, I don't know what countries, but I feel like there's other countries better off out there than than here because we do such a crappy job with our educational system. Like, you know, instead of learning trig and whatever, like trig and all of this stuff that we might not even need in the rest of our lives. Like, yeah, we should have a course with communication styles, social skills with mental health, like therapy, you know, finances. That's the stuff that we need in order to live like a fulfilling life. Yeah. Unfortunately, I is just, um, you know, just a standard of education here is very black and white. Like yeah. it's like you have to learn to remember these things rather than like learn to critical. Like it's more they're making you le- like they're trying to make you like become critical thinkers rather than creative thinkers. And I think like there needs to be a fine balance with that, you know, because, yeah, critical thinking can sometimes, you know, like logic, like logic is very beneficial, but also there needs to be like freedom. You know, sometimes I feel like logic and data can be very, like, restricting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with, with what you're saying. And even at the hospital I work at, um, I don't work in this unit, but we have a children's unit where there's kids as young as five years old locked up in a psychiatric hospital. I think, I think like, five to 12 is the age limit. And more and more kids are in this this sort of mental state because, I mean... I think social media is a huge reason. Trauma, of course. Um, pl- but also just like our overall like school system is not very it's not very beneficial for, for our mental health. You know, well, yeah. I don't know how the words, but but yeah, we we get kids very, very, very young who are already, you know, cutting their wrists and who want to kill their foster parents who are already hearing voices and it's like they're babies you know 
it's i mean you know and there it's i'm I'm trying to find a way to say this without coming off as weird or bad but you know sometimes their parents don't know any better yeah and but it's not their fault because their parents didn't know any better you know and like it's literally just i don't know if you noticed this about the theme recently for the the recent all the pixar movies now are tackling like childhood trauma and like generational trauma you know and it all makes sense because it's so relevant and now that it's becoming something that's noticeable you know, like a lot of people, a lot of the newer, younger generations want to like eliminate this generational trauma, you know, like because yeah. it's just something that previously people didn't know better, but now we do. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, I mean, and that's why it's such a scary time right now. Like, that's why a lot of people don't even want to like have kids because it's just a scary world that we live in. But hopefully in the future, we could get more resources, more funding, um, more knowledge and you know just more of everything in the mental health field so that way we could not be so scared of like creating life on this earth and living meaningful lo- uh, a meaningful life and like being worried about our family or our friends or ourselves you know like i feel like nowadays it's everything is so scary you know like like i said like we know at least one person who commits suicide all the time and yeah it's just more and more so all from different ages too like yeah. like it could be literally anybody thinking these things you know from yeah. people who are have always been quiet and lonely also there's people who've always been like the class clown you know like right it's it's so crazy how how like sneaky this is you know but yeah i mean i think I have faith, you know, I really, I have faith that in time, you know, we're going to eventually learn, but unfortunately it's not going to be through like anytime soon, but it's once the people who care are put into these positions where they can make change. Right. You know, exactly. But yeah, that's just going to take time though. Yeah. Hopefully in the future. I mean, hopefully, you know, in the, the people who are in charge, the president, the senators, all of them, they could recognize like mental health is so important and yeah we need to implement something in our in our programs in our schools uh, slowly I, f- I have i have a good feeling though yeah. but yeah other than that is there anything else you want to you want to talk about i don't think so caesar it was so fun talking about my my job and my experience because every t- every day i come home with new stories and i'm sure my family's tired of hearing my stories but no it was so great to share with everyone what i do and you know just talking about mental mental health and just mental health awareness in general yeah no like i appreciate because you know something that i want to really focus on with what i want to do here in zenith is 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 mental health you know like i want to shine light on that not just the good things but also the bad things you know like the premise of the podcast is exploring culture relationships nature art consciousness but the last thing is the appreciation of life and Mm. that's probably like one of my most important things you know is understanding that it's 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 you know life is hard but you don't really need to go through it alone but yeah. you know that's that's up, it's up to you it's up to you to open up and be vulnerable and you know that's something you did here and i appreciate you for that thank you caesar i appreciate you for having me of course i mean maybe you know like next maybe next time you have more more stories you could come <laughs> back i'd love to have you back i'll always have stories yeah <laughs> always no i i i, I uh, i'm excited for that please please come back and share and for those of you who are still listening i appreciate you um where can people find you at um on my instagram is probably the easiest way so it's at underscore marissa rojo and then also if you want to follow like 
Kedrin, which is where I work, their Instagram is at Kedrin Health. And that's where you'll kind of see like what we do. And um, they're also, they also interviewed me about my doctorate project on there. So they're going to be uploaded on there as well. Yes, check it out. I'll have the both Instagram ads on the link dis- on the episode description. So just make sure to check that out and find them if you have any questions or just curious to see the journey between both the facility and Marissa. But yeah, with that being said, my name is Caesar. Thank you again. I appreciate you. Uh, you could please, if if you're listening to this on Apple or Spotify, give it a you know give give it a five star review if you think I deserve it. I really hope I do. If not, tell me what I can learn from it because we're all about learning here. So, um, with that being said, thank you again. I appreciate you, and you know where to find me at the Zenith. Goodbye. <laughs>